Welcome back to Probably About Politics. This episode, Greenland. Remember um, when Donald Trump said he was going to buy Greenland? Did you think that that was like a real thing? I thought that it was less of a real thing than I think that it turned out to be. Yeah, it turned out to be pretty real. (laughs) I guess we're going to explain that, but... Uh, Just right off the bat, Donald Trump did not buy Greenland. That's not why we're talking about this, because Greenland is owned by the Kingdom of Denmark, but they are their own thing anyway, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think maybe we'll get into. Maybe we won't. (laughs) I think a lot of this is just fun, interesting things about Greenland to try and contextualize why there's an election of in a on an island of 56,000 people in the North Atlantic that we care about. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Not that we don't care about all elections, but yes. this election is specifically gaining probably more international recognition than than previous Greenlandic yes. elections. Yes, and like probably if you heard an offhand thing like the idea of Donald Trump buying Greenland and you thought, oh, a funny little joke. It's like, no, actually contextually there's a lot of geopolitics going on that we're gonna probably there talk are about. the united states already has an air force base in greenland but we're getting ahead of ourselves <laughs> <laughs> because before we talk about the international attention that the greenland election is getting mm-hmm. we have some other things that are getting international attention international attention such as young canadians trying to be the leader of the world yes Everybody, uh, you know, tune in because she is, I, I'm going to introduce this, but she's still waiting for the endorsement of uh, Bob Ray, who is the Canadian ambassador to the UN, um, the decision of whether or not we Canada as a country will endorse her. But uh, Aurora Akansha Akan- uh, yeah, uh, is running um, uh, to lead against Gutierrez. Uh, to to uh, is declared her intention to challenge Gutierrez. Antonio Gutierrez is the current UN Secretary General, um, and she would be sort of the first millennial to have ever led uh, the organization, um, and I think the first woman as well. Yes, I'm I'm fairly certain she's the first woman, and I mean she's she's 34. She's not that young. Um, I mm-hmm. guess in terms of governance, she's pretty young. I guess in terms of UN Secretary General. Oh, certainly in terms of UN Secretary General, she's very young. Yeah, and so her uh, thinking is uh, basically, they they haven't really announced too much of the specifics about what she is uh, sort of uh, envisions for the organization if she were to get the leadership. Uh, But she's sort of saying that, you know, we can't keep doing the same thing. Um, And and they keep sort of bringing in the same people to uh, with the same sort of, uh, it, it, a lot of expertise in the UN and, and stuff like that. She's sort of saying that um, the same experiences before you can't really expect different results. So you want to bring in somebody new uh, to realize the full capabilities of the UN and then to reimagine um, it to live up to its purpose uh, in, in original purpose. So uh, that's an interesting space to keep an eye on. Is this typically like, how does the secretary general of the united nations become that way like do they run elect like do, do other people stand for election or is it like a rotating chair from country to country and then that country just picks somebody or how does that work um so i don't, I, sh- I should know more details but i do know that it basically you uh you get nominated uh or like supported by c- countries and and a, the one with the most sort of backing um but it's pretty like it's a 
yeah, it's it's basically your country's representative at the UN will sort mm-hmm. of throw that country's weight behind it. But it kind mm-hmm. of all falls under like like a lot of the time global south countries will be like, well, we want it to be this a person from this part of the world next and and so it'll have to be someone from that area because mm-hmm. that voting block is big enough if they're united that they can just sort of uh throw the weight around. Yeah. So, uh and Antonio Gutierrez, so it does favor um a lot. it also does favor people who are very like entrenched in the UN and and well known uh, uh to to get uh picked. Yeah. And Antonio Gutierrez has been around for a while. I guess that kind of makes sense. It it's always interesting to me when people don't want somebody who is like deeply entrenched in something to be like the main leader of that thing. Um, mm-hmm. And they're like, we should, we should totally change this, which I'm not necessarily against. I just find it interesting when people really want an outsider to come in or campaign on the fact that they are an outsider and how that, how that often plays with people. Yeah. Um, Cause it's like, sometimes people are like, well, it's, it's very often that people are like, oh, we don't like this, so you will be different. And often not just like, well, why are you going to be the leader of this thing if you don't, <laughs> like, if you're not part of it? Um, yeah. It's just an interesting, st- like, it's a super common thing in, like, campaigns to be like, I'm not part of the establishment. Um, and it's interesting how much people are totally fine with people not being part of the establishment. Yeah, so, like, and, and I think something interesting to and I I you know you you need to hear her speak to it because it again this article was pretty brief and I think it's a little early uh for the like the actual voting process yet mm-hmm. um but the thing about the UN Secretary General's role is it it's a pretty bureaucratic job like it is actually mm-hmm. mostly a position of managing UN staff like you're just the top of a very large um team of people working around the world mm-hmm. um. And so, like, the issues you care about, like, we know, we've talked about a lot, the issues Gutierrez cares about, like, their migration and climate change, he's pretty progressive on these these points, like, and has big vision, but ultimately, most of what he does is manage his staff and, like, speak, um, mm-hmm. give speeches and things. So there's, I mean, maybe, maybe somebody, uh, uh, again, I'm sure people have perspectives on this that I, I don't know uh, enough about to speak to, but... It is somewhat limited, perhaps, in my mind, as a role in terms of what it can mm-hmm. actually do. I mean, jokingly earlier, I referred to the Secretary General as the leader of the world. But, like, <laughs> just because you're the leader of the UN doesn't mean you're, like, the king of the world, right? It's often... That's no. kind of, like, the most public figure, obviously. Um, but on, like, two accounts here, or on, like, two points similar to this, in the United States, it's, like okay, the president is not the king of the United States, even though they try to legislate a lot now, they're not really the legislature. And also, if you want to be the president, maybe it's good to have been a governor or maybe a representative, at least, and not just an outsider. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, um, yeah. Because we've seen that go poorly recently. <laughs> but also, <laughs> it's good to have some fresh ideas. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, speaking of people who... Um, manage things and move things around and they're kind of the leaders of a of a large thing in greenland did you know that the government itself employs almost half of the entire workforce so what does that make the leader of greenland just somebody who manages all other greenlanders i guess (laughs) well half of them yeah (laughs) yeah this was a surprising thing that i learned about greenland Mm. was that 
like it's a country of 56,000 people, about a 27,000 person workforce, because in a workforce, you don't count really old people or really young people or people not seeking work. So there's about 27,000 people who work and over, I think about 11,000 of them work for the government because the government owns like two airlines and also also like a large like fishery and stuff. So like Mm. a lot of stuff is just like crown corporations and just like owned by the government. So in the end, half of the people who have jobs work for the government, which is kind of interesting, even though the government itself is pretty small, being only 31 people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. No, I think Greenland is, it's, a, it's, I mean, we're going to, we're getting into it now, I guess, but it is an interesting country. Like it, a lot of the, it's government's like ideas are, and, and, and the goals of it are really based around making it a country with, that can be independent because it's, it's, uh you know, it's, it's defense and foreign affairs are conducted by Denmark Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of its budget comes from Denmark and they're like yes. a lot of the moves and like the, the primary election issues that we're going to cover here are about, um, that like t- the, the desire for independence and to be able mm-hmm. to actually, uh, take over their own governing, uh, tools, I guess. So there job. is kind of like an interesting interplay between the parliaments of Greenland and, uh, Denmark, um, mainly mm-hmm. because in the Danish parliament, the Folketing, there are two seats reserved for Greenlanders. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the um, Greenlandic parliament, the Yanazi Sartut, there are no seats for um, Danes. Well, I guess kind of everybody who lives in Greenland is a Dane, kind of, because they are mm. part of the kingdom of Denmark. So I guess all of the seats are reserved for Danes. But <laughs> <laughs> but it's like they get a say in... Um, in Danish politics, but Danes don't get a say in Greenlandic politics, except for the fact that they control all of their budget and military and foreign affairs. <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's where it gets tricky. Yeah, like cause Greenland's not going around and and doing Denmark's uh, foreign affairs work. Uh, well, not in the mm-hmm. formalized sense. They're not doing foreign affairs. Yeah, work so there are we'll there is that. stuff going on there. Um. Some interesting things that I just wanted to point out before we talk about kind of why this election is happening to kind of set the scene for what Greenland is like. 70% of the power in Greenland comes from renewable hydropower. Mm -hmm. Much of the island is, it's the largest island in the world. Much of the island is untouched. It has the um, largest national park in the world. Um, the Northeast Greenland National Park, which is almost completely untouched. Nobody lives there. Um, and actually, interestingly, it is the second largest subdivision of any country <laughs> behind only Kakaktaluk region in Nunavut in Canada, which is the mm. largest subdivision of any country in the world. Um, but yeah, so Greenland National or Northeast Greenland National Park, huge untouched wilderness. A lot of the country is basically untouched, pristine. There's only 56,000 people that live there. Um, everything's renewable power. And that sets the stage kind of for why it's such a big deal what this election is about, which I guess we can take the wrapper off the <laughs> the the present here and that it's mostly about mining um yes which is something that i i mean 
a lot of this stuff is kind of similar in Canada too. Like Canada, there's a lot of renewable power, a lot of hydropower, a lot of people saying we have these natural resources that can allow us to be a more sovereign country. We can protect our sovereignty th this way um, through extraction of these natural resources and other people saying we should not do that. And in Greenland, there was a coalition right between the Siamut, the Nunata Kitorni, and then the Democrats making up 17 seats total and then recently the democrats left over a spat about mining rights in the country and letting other countries mine those resources yeah and so and i think that i think uh, like uh, as our most of our listeners are canadian i think you will see a lot of uh, a lot of interesting conversations that are really ongoing as as alex really pointed out to natural resource extraction also the very large um uh indigenous population in greenland like the i think it's a if it's not majority it, it, it makes up a very large it percent it's almost 90 percent of yeah. the population of greenland is uh indigenous um and then about 10 percent is made up of danish other nordic um ethnicities and then some other people who decide to live in greenland for some reason about one percent of the population <laughs> yes which probably makes up like there's as, as alex mentioned the u.s has an air base there like there mm -hmm. there are people who each sort of end up there uh for research and and air base uh military defense things i think mm -hmm. as well so yeah it so and then there's like also like a really inter, uh, interesting component of i think the uh, international like sort of or like of climate uh, of, of green technologies i think to be had here as well um so so basically there is the site for two mines for what are known as rare earth uh rare earth metals um and demand for that is is really really is growing really really fast specifically mm -hmm. because it's useful in green tech so wind turbines um as well as like a lot of military and scientific technology i think as well um, mostly used in um like electronic circuits and batteries and stuff so interestingly all of this stuff is resource extraction which people don't want but also it's used for renewable energy down the line which i mean there's a huge debate about like what is the cradle to grave environmental impact of resource extraction for renewable technologies whole other podcast <laughs> but it is a difficult it there i mean both people on both sides of this have very reasonable things to say i think which makes the which makes the conversation so interesting mm -hmm. yeah it's it's just like i think what we're yeah in dipping our toes into this the interesting thing about this greenland election is we're dipping our toes into a lot of very big global conversations mm -hmm. that are like ongoing and that's so that's sort of the first part of it um as well so rare earth uh metals like the this is sort of projected to be the largest i think or, or the world's largest undeveloped deposit because it, it's it's the ice ice caps are melting out of, and so it's so this is revealing an undeveloped reserve uh deposit uh that that with that undeveloped deposit and uh a projected like massive increase in in need for rare earth uh metals for very crucial industries uh mm -hmm. in in the next 50 years or so um it's sort of like a it's a bit of a battle to the to 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 the top i guess in terms of uh sovereign sovereignty and and the ability to control these industries um especially since china i think has 95 percent of the processing uh ability of rare earth uh, metals at this point 
China itself does have large deposits of rare earth metals as well. Um, but uh, Kveinfjeld, which is the mine in Greenland, has the second largest single deposit of rare earth oxides and also one of the largest uranium deposits in the world um, as well. Yeah, I think that it's like the EU's demand for the metal at the Kveinfjeld mine will reach 13 a thousand tons per year by 2050 which is three times more than 2015 i i think anybody who's sort of paying attention to uh sort of the there is a lot of tension um between uh china's like support of uh in this the chinese government's support of their businesses uh in china going other countries and setting up businesses and the 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 their expansion of their influence so there's always a constant tension of uh, over that um as well as uh the the US the EU Canada Australia um are sort of all um to a certain extent united on the idea that the, that this is an opportunity uh for uh sort of western countries the the western countries specifically that I listed to um, assert some control over those resources to to uh, 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 you know uh, gain a foothold in in the ra- the area of re- rare earth metal extraction. Um, so so you're setting up, I guess, within this country of uh, and this election of, of fifty six thousand people. Uh, basically, uh, you know the 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 ongoing power struggle uh, that is globally existing at this moment. I think um, an easy way to sum up how many other countries are involved with this extraction is that there's this there's a company called Greenland Minerals and Energy, which owns the Kvienfeld mine. Now, you would think that the Greenland Minerals and Energy Corporation would be owned by probably the Greenland government. It's not. Greenland Minerals and Energy is owned by an Australian development company, um, <laughs> but um, that was in 2007, and now in 2017, the major shareholder of the Australian company called Greenland Minerals and Energy is Shanghai Resources Holding, which is a Chinese company on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. And so it's really a majority, a majority Chinese-held Australian company that's uh, that owns the region that the mine is in, in Greenland. <laughs> um, and so there's just... I think it really makes it confusing then because the people of Greenland, because they don't own this mine, don't necessarily benefit. They do benefit from jobs in the region and stuff like what happens in Canada, but then those minerals are then shipped to other countries and they don't have control over them and they don't necessarily have the downstream benefits of this of these technologies that it enables. They don't do the, the smithing of it. They don't do the enrichment of it. They don't um, then use it in the electronics themselves. So, I mean, we, we see this in Canada all the time. It's like, well, we have these things. I mean, people get all mad in Canada because we sell a bunch of water to Nestle for $1. And they're like, well, that's our water. And there's this kind of like ownership feeling of that. That's our stuff that you're taking. And you're like, okay, sure. You're paying us for it, but maybe not. Obviously you're going to make more money from it or else you wouldn't be buying it from us for this amount of money. Yeah, in a in a cycle or in like the process of creating something, for sure, the closer you are to the raw product, the less mm-hmm. good end of the deal you're you're typically getting, unless you yes. can somehow manage to set it all up. Which is somehow um, why in a cafe, a uh, small coffee costs five dollars, but 
when there's yeah. somebody farming coffee beans, they make like $5 a day, even though they're making enough beans to make a thousand cups of coffee. Yeah. Um, but we're off topic. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, and that's, I guess that's the problem with this, this, or not the problem, the interesting part of this election is it is very easy to get off topic because there are a lot of really big things happening here. So in Greenland, who is, fo- so there was the, the coalition, right? And the Democrats left the coalition. Which part of the government is for the the mining and which part of the government is against it i know it kind of aligns with the part of the government that are like separatist and want more independence for greenland and the other part is kind of people who want more to do with denmark as a whole there so i would say that almost all the parties are not uh, almost all the major like player parties anyway are not all entirely against all the mines um, because om- I think almost all the parties are also for independence and it is pretty clear that at this point independence will come through or the possibility of independence is really tied to the mine. I mean, like it's important to know that like Greenland's uh, other, one of Greenland's other major industries of, uh, of tourism is like, has been completely shut down. So they're just not getting mm-hmm. anything from that because of COVID. Um, they have like a burgeoning, um, agricultural industry uh, and uh, they have fisheries as well um, that are really starting to do a bit better particularly because again similarly to the reason that rare earth metals are doing well is because the ice is melting so they're they're, they're getting more access to, to some of these industries but they're sort of early days so the the best route to independence if they want it is through mining um uh, these metals. And so I would say almost none of the parties are completely opposed to all of the mines because there are two mines um, of mm-hmm. different sort of consequence. Um, okay. But uh, the IU part, the IA party, which is the, uh, it's like a democratic socialist separatist political group uh, party is probably the biggest challenger to the current um, uh, sort of dominant party of this, the Su- Su- Sumut party has been sort of a constant governing party. Uh, mm-hmm. they, I think they only lost once in like seven, the seventies. Um, and, and so right now the, the IA party, uh, are probably the biggest challengers. Um, and they support, uh, they, I think they support the Tan Breeze mine. Is that one of the, yeah, the Tan Breeze mine over the, uh, Kevin Field, Kevin Field mine, um, but it's sort of like it's a bit of a tricky thing because they're also they're they're supporting it because it's a less of a threat to the environment, but most of the threats are still pretty similar. Like uh, I guess the Kevin Field uh, uh, mine is uh, is there's more risk of nu- nu- nuclear waste and uh, uh, your like uranium extraction, right? I think that's how I understood it. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's always difficult in this because like you can't necessarily just paint the picture of like, okay, well, these people are for it. These people are against it. And there's a lot of other things leading into it, right? Like necessarily if they're like a an environmental party or not, Um, kind of generally the um, the IA party, which you were talking about, which the English name is the community of the people. So we can just go with that. (laughs) And the uh, the Sumu party. Are, are definitely more um, separatist, um, independence-related parties for Greenland and the Democrats 
um, are more aligned with um, the status quo, at least as it is. Um, interesting, there are there is another party um, that has seats in the Anatsartut, which is the Atasut party or the Solidarity party, which actually is like a sister party of a party in um, Denmark itself and was formed as that to try to keep the two countries or the the, the entire kingdom <laughs> together, I guess you would say. Um, so yeah, it was the Democrats that kind of pulled out and forced this snap election to make everybody decide. So they were kind of the ones upset about these mining rights getting, getting sold. Um, but now the people are going to decide, right? They're going to go back to the polls and they're going to vote on which of these parties um, maintains power, which is always difficult in a proportional representation system because who knows? Because like probably not that much is going to change and you're not, you certain parties could win, but if a coalition is formed that is in opposition to this, even though nobody necessarily really voted for that coalition, that's what comes out of it, right? Um, so that's, I don't know. It's so difficult to really like predict or figure out because right now the Siumut party um, with the Nunata Katorne um, are the coalition, which like the Nunata Katorne are like a complete separatist <laughs> independence party. They only have one seat in the legislature, but that's what if that's what puts you over the top to form a coalition. Yeah. In a 31 seat legislature, that, that could do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, if you're making your coalition with the Solidarity Party instead, with their two seats instead of the descendants of our country, the Nunatakatori Party, um, totally changes the shape of the coalition, right? So, yeah, and like it's, a, I think also like it should be like there is a lot of so it's we focus a bit on like external attention, like that you know countries are concerned about this and are watching this election, but like internally, mm-hmm. this is. There is a lot. There is a fair bit of tension. Like so. So uh, uh, one of the mines is very close to one of the biggest towns in Greenland. Um, mm-hmm. And when they started public consultation, um, the public consultation had to be shut down because of a bomb threat and major, like uh, uh, major disruptions. Um, mm-hmm. Because there is a lot of there are a lot of people who are really concerned about it. Um, the mine that is built, being built near the biggest uh, one of the bigger towns um is yeah as we talked about it's like uranium extraction and they said like i guess they're gonna like i don't know much about this part but they're gonna spray down so that it doesn't get into the water but they are gonna ultimately be dumping a whole lot of uh waste into uh, a river that could event and and no and like these are again as we said these are indigenous uh communities um, and I think if, if sort of, if you're familiar with like the history of, of, uh, mm. the impacts of, of, uh, uh, developments like, uh, like mining, um, and other resource extraction industries that the history is that these are going to ultimately impact the other natural resources that that community is very dependent on, like fishing, um, and hunting, um, or it, the, the, it's safer to assume that they will impact that despite the safety reports that they have released and said that it'll have a minimal impact but you know who are you going to trust i guess or how what does history tell you about what will happen there in terms of radioactive waste storage Mm -hmm. um so it there's a lot happening internally as well as like so you want they simultaneously you know you're very concerned about the protection of of i guess what is actually unesco world heritage site 
um, an important home to uh, a number of indigenous communities, as well as a, an internal, uh, as well as a desire to seize on the opportunity to be independent and grow as a country. So the outcome of this election will be known fairly rapidly from the time of recording this. Um, should be known by midweek. <laughs> um, so by the time by the time you're hearing this, you can probably go and look at the um, results of this and see whether or not um, after after the dust settles, whether or not there will be large mining operations in Greenland, whether or not Greenland will stay. <laughs> not that that's really up for debate right now, but all of the parties, it's so, I mean, it's always difficult to peg down parties um, especially in like proportional representation systems because mm-hmm. there are so many parties um, yeah. and like everything in Greenland is along the the unionist versus independence mm-hmm. um, spectrum and also on the on an environmental spectrum and also on the typical more um, uh, left right spectrum of just like monetary policy mm-hmm. um, so it's difficult it's difficult to try and boil it down but if you just want to know who's the winner uh maybe we'll tweet out the results <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll do it we'll do our best to find the hashtag for the greenland uh national election and i wonder mm-hmm. if that'll get trending i guess we never talked about the uh actual makeup of the um parliament oh, yes. and the and the system in greenland greenland uh is pretty similar to canada in that they have a uh, an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch, but the executive branch is appointed by the um, the Kingdom of Denmark, uh, and so that um, representative doesn't really have any power. They're mostly they're mostly ceremonial, and so they just have this unicameral body of thirty one members, um, which is actually very few people per member, um, which is kind of interesting in that there's only like. As far as representation goes, I think this might be our our system that is the most representative of the people, given that there are only eighteen hundred people per representative, um, which mm-hmm. I think is the the smallest ratio that uh, that we've ever covered in a country. Yes, it's got to be very close. If it's not, it, it has to. This is definitely the smallest country that we've ever covered. So, <laughs> but. If you will bear with me, Kaylee, there is somewhere that has an even smaller population. Okay. <laughs> I believe it. That has an even smaller population, which is WASP-107B. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> are, we doing, are we doing space news? Let's do space news. Space news. Nice. <laughs> so <laughs> the population of WASP-107B is, as far as we know, zero um mm-hmm. and also they do not have a democratic system on wasp 107b <laughs> but um there is a canadian connection the uh discovery of this exoplanet um was made by a phd student at the university of montreal in canada oh, nice um or at least she did the research that is coming out of this um and found that this planet is it's called a super puff planet mm-hmm. which is it is it like like a cocoa puff or you know like basically it has approximately the density of cotton candy wow right <laughs> i don't know um, if i can even conceptualize that in my mind i don't know it's like, it's about the size of jupiter mm-hmm. but 10 times lighter jeez 
It's a lot of um, cotton candy. Exactly. So it is, it's absolutely enormous, um, but it doesn't weigh very much. Uh, and so this is just kind of like a cool thing. Normally they go around and they have this like big cloud of super non-dense stuff around them and it kind of floats off and they leave this trail behind them. Anyway, it's just a cool type of planet. Um, but the interesting thing about this one is that it has an exceptionally tiny core. So it even has, <laughs> it has even less density than typical super puff planets. Cause normally a super puff planet will have like a pretty big rocky core. And then mm-hmm. it, when a, when a solar system forms, <laughs> when a daddy solar system <laughs> and a mommy solar system really love each other, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. you get like a reasonably large core of a planet that goes around and as all like the gas and dust in the solar system is there, it kind of scoops up a bunch of it. And then eventually, but it can only, it can only get so much because it's kind of close to what is going to be the sun in the middle. And then the sun that's going to, or the star that's going to be there collects more of that mm-hmm. gas and dust. Right. But this guy, WASP-107b actually has a really, really tiny core. So then these astronomers were like, how does this thing have such a tiny core? Mm-hmm. Um, and they, so they think that it actually formed really far out and then it actually potentially had some sort of catastrophic interaction with another planet that the, she also discovered wasp 107 C. Um, mm-hmm. and it kind of like fell in to the, um, middle or, or towards the sun in the solar system. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up being this big cotton candy puff, super puff planet, um, but actually also has a cute, tiny little core, which is about, I think, 30% the size of what a normal core should be for a planet this size, for a super puff <laughs> this size. And so, like, um, I don't know, maybe this isn't a good question, but where is this? Where is the super puff planet? Where is yeah. WASP-107b? Yeah, like, you know, how do I go find it? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, uh, like, it... How how far did we have to look in order did did this PhD student have to look in order to find it? If you want to look at it, um, it's about two hundred light years away from us. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look at the right spot in the sky, it's inside of the constellation Virgo. Oh, okay. So if you look at Virgo and you believe, um, <laughs> you'll be able to see uh, Wasp one hundred seven B out there somewhere that in, way. Yeah. In the sky. Yeah. all right cool that is good space news yes it is exceptionally hot as well 500 degrees celsius it's one of the hottest exoplanets so uh but it's also very light so that's it super puff planet it's not like our next home planet i don't think it doesn't seem like a good candidate (laughs) it is not the next home but fun news um from canadian astronomers i mean they're also astronomers from i think five other countries and a team of like 20 people working on it but carolyn is the first author on the paper so we're going to talk about her nice <laughs> congratulations carolyn anyway that is it uh for probably politics greenland uh thank you for listening if you haven't yet uh like and subscribe to the pod and if you have already send it to a friend um, and if you want to like super subscribe, make sure to email probablepolitics at gmail.com and ask us to be on the newsletter mm-hmm. or go on Twitter at probpolitics. Send us a tweet saying, I want to be on the newsletter or just say that you love us. That's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. We also like it. If you just reach out and say that you love us, that's nice. <laughs> the validation. Uh, in any case, whether or not you do that, we love you and thank yes. you for listening to probably Politics. All right.